Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church. We are continuing our series on uh, mental health and the work of God to strengthen us in our mental health. And today's, um, today's topic is Christian care during family and marital difficulties. And uh, we're, we're looking at not just uh, the people, but today we're going to look at a, and have a focus on uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in Christian care. All of us are aware of the profound mental health effects that family dynamics have upon us as, as adults and as, and as children. The scientific and sociological evidence is abundant, but we don't need the science to affirm and the statistics to affirm what we already know. The presence of negative emotional behaviors in families, in clinical or in non-clinical levels, can have serious effects that last a long time in our lives, leading to ongoing mental health issues for, you know, ongoing, for real potential, not only in, in our lives in a long-term way, but also in the following generations. And as we all know, the, the presence of serious mental health problems is not a prerequisite to the experience of sin in marriage and family life. Families with and without serious mental health concerns all deal with the effects of sin expressed in anger, in abuse, in sexual immorality, in abandonment, in lying, in divisiveness, and in malicious speech. And we need to address these sins at all levels for our own mental health and for the generations of us that follow. And we need to do this not just in order for us to experience the peace and happiness that we all long for and that marriage and family life really promises, but to more fully express our, our thanks to God as his adopted children who have been given the calling and, and the resources to overcome these sins and to more fully express what it means to be a human being and to have human families and human interactions, which ultimately gives glory and praise to God. So my goal is that today's sermon will be both preventative in helping us avoid unhealthy family dynamics, as well as, as a source of healing for all of us, all of us who have failed in our responses to the challenges that we face in our marriages and in our families. And for those of you who are single at this point, this, this message is also addressed to you as you are members of families at some level. And for those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all members of the family of God. And the truths today that we look at uh, are not only applicable in marriages and individual households, but in the whole family of God as well. And so I want to look at uh, the purpose of marriage and family life, uh, the power that we have available in our marriages and in our families and in our churches to strengthen our, our mental health and happiness. And then I want to look at the important players that are involved in it. So the power, the purpose, the players. So the, at first, the purpose. The purpose of marriage and family is, is really um, set in its most comprehensive a context in the book of Ephesians. It teaches that, that our lives, all of our lives, are set within the context of this spiritual realm in which invisible spiritual forces, evil and good, are, are dwelling. And, these, and the evil forces, as well as the good, the, 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 the evil forces 
uh, are exerting power into the world uh, to destroy God and to dishonor him by corrupting and deceiving and destroying humanity. The good forces, the good invisible forces are at work in, in opposition to them. Well, the power base for the evil forces at work in our lives was sin and death. Jesus conquered uh, these evil forces by conquering sin and death with his life and his death and his resurrection. So with sin and death overcome, God continued in his work to set out to do what he was doing from the beginning, to create a world where we as human beings could dwell in, with him in perfect harmony and peace and experience his love together. That's what God has been doing. That's what he continues to do. And Jesus Christ has destroyed the oppositions against those things. And now through the Holy Spirit, God is building a place for his dwelling in the church. The new temple of God's presence where we are able to experience the fullness of God's presence. So the church is this heavenly reality uh, consisting of everyone who has ever believed in the gospel, but it is also the local church, which is the physical expression of that heavenly reality here on earth, multiplied hundreds of thousands of times across the globe. And families are a part of this local church. And by living according to the household order established by God, uh, as individuals, as families, as a household, as a church household, local churches fulfill their calling by demonstrating, this is what Lawrence read in Ephesians chapter 3, by living what God has ordered for the church, we are thwarting and we are shaming these evil spiritual forces who are seeking to dishonor God. God is using us, and through us, through his grace and love and power, he is showing that sin is no longer our master and that we can experience his presence and experience the power of the grace of God in our lives given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God created marriage to reflect the relationship that Christ has with the church. As the Spirit is working to bring all things into unity with Jesus Christ and under Jesus Christ, and shaping churches to reflect that unity through his indwelling, the Spirit is at work to bring husbands and wives and parents and children into unity with Christ as well. And that produces in the marriage and in the family the same effect that God is at work in the church doing, producing radiance, producing beauty, producing purity. So in a nutshell, the Spirit of God is at work in our marriages and in our families and in our local churches to produce unity and peace, which generates happiness in us as people and reflects a beauty and wisdom not only to the world, but to this, to this spiritual realm, which demonstrates the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So let's look at the power, the power that we have, the power that God has given to us to bring harmony and peace and unity to our marriages and our families. We've already highlighted the work of the Holy Spirit, that the work that he's doing to unite people as God's family for his dwelling. Well, God seals us as individuals with that Holy Spirit. He places that Holy Spirit within us. He seals us. Uh, that, that sealing is, is, is fully functioning in, until we are in God's presence. 
So the Holy Spirit then indwells us and also identifies us with Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized also into the body of Christ, the church. However, while we, while we fully have the Holy Spirit and we are fully baptized into Christ and the church, that does not, this does not automatically mean that we will experience the full power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians speaks of the Spirit strengthening us with power in our inner beings so that Christ more fully dwells in us through faith. So we can have this continuum of experiencing the power of God at work in us through the Holy Spirit. And this faith that the Holy Spirit strengthens us then enables us to be filled with all the fullness of God. Similarly, Paul speaks in Ephesians of being filled with the, rather, with the Holy Spirit rather than living a life of debauchery. So we can have the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be filled or experience the fullness of God. To do that, we have to follow these instructions, put our faith and trust in, in God working through His Son and His Spirit in these instructions. Now, it's important to also... Um, Mention the fruits of the Spirit at this point. We've already noted that, that radiance and purity and beauty are fruits of the Spirit's work in, in the church and in marriage. And Paul adds to these things uh, in Galatians chapter 5 the following. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, these are things that we are obviously all longing for, especially in our marriages and in our families. And these are the things that the Spirit is striving to work into us. I think one of the things that we find is if, if we pursue those things in and of themselves as our focal point, we, we will find that we won't reach them, which is why the, the, the Scriptures uh, throughout the New Testament, and all the authors emphasize the, 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 the work that we have to tend our minds to, the, the focus that we, not, that we need to have is not on those fruits, but on being in step with the Spirit, of walking in the Spirit, of aligning our lives with the Spirit, of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. When we set our minds on the things of the Spirit and pursue His will, we will find that the Spirit will work those fruits into our lives. So we, the first thing, so in, when Paul says, uh, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, he gives, he gives us some instructions on that. And there are three things that he specifically says that, that we need to do in order to be filled. First, we are to resist the temptation to give our lives to debauchery. And instead, we are to strive to understand the will of the Lord. Now, debauchery, uh, broadly understood, is to behave in such a way uh, that gives little or no regard to the consequences of our behavior. That being filled with the Spirit is mentioned as an alternative to drunkenness. We can see that Paul is addressing behaviors, of which drunkenness is one. It's not the only thing that we can engage in uh, to engage in debauchery. But he's addressing behaviors that seek to escape or to numb the challenges that life gives us. As an alternative to drunkenness and debauchery with the positive effect of producing joy and peace, which is what we're all striving for, 
Paul says, says this, to, to understand the will of God, to live according to it, and to then experience the Spirit's filling, which will produce these fruits. So this specifically takes the form of, of engaging in efforts to learn and understand what it means to know and to follow God, which he's spent the last four and a half chapters describing. The second thing that he instructs us to do to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to address one another with songs that praise and give thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The challenges of marriage and the challenges of family, work, and community life in this world can be very overwhelming, they can get very depressing, and they can create a lot of anxiety. And our tendency is to engage in acts of debauchery to minimize these effects, to escape from them. This can take the form of, of drunkenness, sexual immorality, laziness, etc. But if we're really looking for the Spirit's effect in our lives, Jesus teaches us to take a step back, take a step back from the things that cause us pain, and recognize that God is at work in the world to sum up all things in Jesus Christ, to bring in the light of the kingdom and to overcome darkness. He has rescued us from the life of wrath that characterizes the world, and he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, who has the unique capacity, and the Holy Spirit is the, is the only entity and force that can do this, because he's present within us. He has the unique capacity to give us a sense of joy, of happiness, of peace, and of patience, even when the circumstances of our lives are working against those very things. And in gratitude for this, we're called to sing. Expressions of song and thankfulness to God are expressions of a recognition that, that the things going on in the world um, are not the ultimate reality and ultimate power. That God is at work through Christ and the Spirit to bring about his kingdom and that we are a part of that. And to sing and worship God for that uh, enforces and acknowledges that reality. We are to regularly sing to and with one another as expressions of this unity and thanksgiving to God. The third strategy that Paul mentions seems strange. And despite its textual clarity and interconnectedness with, with the rest of the book, these teachings are often minimized or, as is increasingly the case, disregarded. Capping off the list on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit is the command for the church to submit to one another. Now, contemporary translations wrongly place a pretty strong division, usually with bold headings, a division between verses 21 and 22 of chapter 5, which makes it seem like the instructions that have come up through 21 are kind of separate from the instructions that follow in verses 22 and the rest of the book. But in the original manuscripts, there is no such divide. These things are connected. The consequence of this division leads many readers, even those who affirm the teaching of submission that follows in verses 22 through 6-9, it, it gives, the, it gives the, the sense that everyone in the church is supposed to submit to everyone else in the church which is an impossible instruction to fulfill and really doesn't make any sense. Now, to submit 
someone is to subordinate your mission to someone else's. Submission. For example, when we take a job at a company, we don't enter into that workplace, we don't enter into that job and set out on our own mission for that role. The mission of the company is determined by its leadership. And that mission is then worked out through human systems of authority and various functions and roles. And in a large organization, there are many layers of people who have to submit to one another in order for the purposes of that organization to be fulfilled. And eventually, you get to the point where there's some leading role, a person or group of people that function as the head of that organization. To have everyone in an organization or a group submitting to each other would never lead to unity or peace. It would be chaos. Everybody would have their own opinions on what would need to be done, and everybody would be obligated to follow everybody else, and it would be, again, chaos. Now, we are all called to be considerate, to be respectful, to be gracious to one another, to bear one another's burdens, but those terms do not establish authority dynamics like the word submit does. So Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9, in addressing marriages and families with children and in the, in the workplace, uh, these instructions are establishing authority dynamics. Those who are under authority, the wives and the children and the employees, are to submit to those who are in authority over them, husbands, parents, and employers. And this group of people uh, is also from what we understand from Ephesians chapter 4, this group of people are all under the authority of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the shepherds who are given the responsibility to lead and head the church toward maturity. But Paul, knowing human nature and the tendency that authorities have to abuse their positions of power and authority, he provides a corrective for each person in the role of authority. Husbands are to nurture and cherish their wives. Fathers are to avoid provoking their children to anger. And employers are instructed to avoid making threats to those who work under them. So to experience the filling of the Holy Spirit in the context of marriage and family is to recognize that the Holy Spirit is working to build unity and peace through these authority structures. Those who are under authority are to orient themselves to the mission of the one in authority. Those who are in authority are to use their role for the growth and the strength and the beautification of those who are under their authority. Both roles are positions of service and sacrifice for the greater good. Now, there are other texts that give these same instructions, and if you take them as a whole, there are three things that get in the way of our following of these instructions. The first one is fear, and this is the, the challenge that Peter directly addresses when he instructs wives to submit to their husbands. He makes a connection be, between a wife's ability to hope in God, reject fear, and submit to her husband even when he is being disobedient to the word of God, even when he's being disobedient to Jesus. And you get the sense that there's active rebellion there. Now, wives are obviously not the only people to experience fear. And so I think that we can all learn from these, this instruction, regardless of where we are at in a various range of groups and organizations where authority structures 
are at work. Fear is our emotional response to things that we feel threaten our well-being. When we feel afraid, we, we often take matters into our own hands and we exert whatever power we have to change our circumstances and to pressure people to do what we want them to do. In the case of wives, especially those who are married to husbands who are not committed to following Jesus, life can become extremely fearful. A wife's temptation is to exercise dominance over her husband to control him, especially through her emotions and her words. And Jesus understands this dynamic. And truly, Jesus has the same goal that the fearful wife has to work with the husband in such a way that produces a greater degree of, of love from the husband towards his wife and towards his children so that there is a sense of, of security for his wife and family. But Jesus also understands, as he created us and he sees how sin affects us, Jesus understands how human nature works and also how the spirit works in marriage to bring about change from the heart. A wife that exerts control over her husband will increasingly drive her husband to be more bitter and more harsh toward her. However, a wife that demonstrates respect and kindness will find that her husband will more quickly seek to care for and to protect her. And this is the principle of the gospel. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2. And ultimately, in the case of fear, we need to come face to face with the question of who we are putting our trust in for the care of our lives. Do we honestly believe that we can exert enough control so that we can shape and control the circumstances and the people around us so that our sources of fear are extinguished? I think obviously that's impossible. God himself doesn't even promise to do that. But what he does promise is to provide us with the resources we need through the Holy Spirit to walk through whatever suffering we face with patient and joyful endurance, which will then have a redemptive effect on those people around us. And again, how does he do it? He does it through the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts through faith and changes the hearts of people around us because we do not respond to fear with more threats and anger, but we respond in kindness and in gentleness. Anger is the second response to things that we believe threaten our well-being. So fear and now anger, which often emerges out of fear. Both Paul and Peter address this with husbands, as their tendency is to draw upon the power that anger has when they feel that they are being dishonored and disrespected. This is usually the greatest challenge for men, for husbands. In overcoming anger, we must be face-to-face -face with the question of where we believe our sense of honor and respect comes from. If our sense of honor and respect is dependent upon the honor and respect that others give us, 
then we're going to really busy ourselves and use our lives and whatever authority and a power we have to oppress and control people that they would obey and serve us. And that's what Jesus calls lording over people. And it's what many in the world who are in places of authority, that's how they work. But those who are in the Lord recognize that positions of authority are given by Christ. And that a sense of honor and respect comes from Jesus and not from those around. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is who has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And the scriptures teach that we are seated with him in that place of honor and respect. And if we are secure in this identity and power, then we are at peace to calmly and patiently lead, protect, and even engage in conflict with gentleness, with compassion. And the demonstration of this confident but humble strength then elicits respect from those under the care of those who are in authority, which then strengthens their role in the family and in the community because they are now trusted. They're not using their authority for selfish and personal gain. They are using their authority for the care of others. And where does this identity and strength of faith and that identity come from? Again, it is the Spirit that baptizes us into Jesus Christ, and it is the Spirit that strengthens our faith in who we are in Jesus Christ. The last challenge is rebellion or the desire that, that all of us have to move in our own direction rather than follow in the direction of our authorities or of Jesus Christ. The heart of rebellion is the belief that the way of happiness, all the things that we want, all those fruits of the Spirit, that the way to get those things is our own way, to fulfill our own passions, to fulfill our own desires. And this rebellion works itself out as rebellion against our human authorities. Authorities have been given the responsibility to lead and to protect those, those groups, those organizations, and the people that are under their care. Now, children are, are specifically addressed in rebellion. As we have all been children, have children, or observed children, we know that they generally oppose anything that inhibits their fun and doing what they want to do. But being children... They are not aware of what is good or harmful for them much of the time. But God has given children, parents, who are sincerely concerned for their well-being and their long-term happiness and success. And, and God has given children a promise, and it's, it's really a unique thing uh, if you stop and think about it. It is the only command as, as the scriptures teach, it is the only command that comes with the promise that it will go well for children. Life will go well for them if they submit to their parents and follow their authority and resist that desire to rebel. The question rebellious children and all of us who have a tendency to rebel must face is, is whether or not we really know what's best for us. Can an inexperienced child look down the road and know what parents who have already experienced much of life know? No, it's impossible. 
Jesus has created us. Jesus has set in order his purposes and his plan. Jesus has seen throughout thousands of years human nature, and he gives us instructions. And Jesus himself had to face this ultimate test with his father. Could he really trust his father? As he cried out to God in anticipation of his, of his crucifixion and death in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, we see, he expressed his desire to avoid what was coming. He told his father, God, I don't really want to do this. But then he ultimately told God that he would submit to his will. That then led him to submit to the authorities that came to arrest him to submit to the authorities that tried him falsely and ultimately submitted to the authorities that killed him. But the story doesn't end there. The Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead in power and seated him at the right hand of God. And as a man, Jesus became king over all things in heaven and on earth. As a man, Jesus was given the, pos the position as being the head of the church and as a man, Jesus received an inheritance, which is us. Paul even prays in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians that, that we would be able to comprehend how great of a treasure that we are to Jesus Christ. We are so valuable to him. It is beyond our ability to understand how valuable we are to him without the Holy Spirit making that known to us. Against all appearances, Jesus' submission to God through faith in God and his word ultimately brought about good, not only for Jesus, but for all who have believed upon him. Now, we've looked at the purpose of marriage. We've looked at the power that God provides marriages and family through the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the roles that, that the Spirit and that Christ play in this. But I want to look now at the local church. And there are three things that I want to mention about the local church. First, we see that God has gifted the church with men and women who are called to equip the whole church in the, in the word of God. And along with the Holy Spirit, this work that these equippers do out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, they bring the church to a place of maturity so it's no longer tossed back and forth by competing agendas, competing worldviews, competing teaches, teachings that would undermine who God is, that would undermine who Jesus is, and that would undermine what God has called us to do. So the church has to play this role. And as a part of the outworking of that maturity, the whole church, not just those with the equipping gifts, the whole church has been given the responsibility to speak the truth in love. And this comes out in two ways. First, we all play a massive role in encouraging and comforting each other in the identities and callings that we have been given in Jesus Christ. So our truth speaking has this role of shaping our, our weak and our struggling minds and hearts to hold to what is true about us. But at other times, we're called to speak the truth in love, to exhort one another and to expose sin so that sin doesn't continue to destroy the individuals and the families and the whole church because it spreads. Both of these forms are infinitely important. The, the, the truth speaking to comfort and encourage and instruct and build up, and the truth speaking to confront sin before it leads to further destruction. And the final aspect is through our prayers. Jesus repeatedly instructs the church to pray for each other. And Paul testifies 
to this, to this very work. In, in Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in all scripture, he's in prison, he's suffering. And he says that I am confident that I will be delivered because of the Holy Spirit who is at work and through your prayers. And deliverance to him at that point is being able to suffer while honoring Jesus Christ, persevering and enduring with joy and patience without sin. Now, marriages and families are the primary contexts for much of our shaping as people. But individual families do not have all of the resources they need to become mature and to fulfill their callings and to experience the fullness of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. God hasn't gifted individual families with the resources needed for maturity. He has given those things to the local church. And marriages and families are places where sins and secrets can go hidden and unexposed for years, decades, and even generations. I think all of us would be able to see uh, and have observed, at least in our own families, if not our own families and others, where we see sins that pass on from generation to generation, sins that are never addressed. It's natural for this to happen, for sins to stay cloistered in individual family units because when we feel weak or vulnerable or afraid or ashamed of of our sin that we've committed against each other or sins that have been committed against us, we generally want to pull away in fear and shame. And we need the strength of the gospel and we need the, to, to know that we have a, a community where it is safe to expose our sins and the sins that have been committed against us. And this is the role that the, tru- that the Spirit truly empowers. When we extend ourselves in support of others and when we risk being vulnerable and when we risk even being rejected, Our hearts are opened up in a greater way for the Spirit to work to further unite us through love and a shared experience of maturing and overcoming sin. And when we consider things like criminal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and clinical mental health issues, there is a tendency to undermine the role a local church can have in the protection and in the care and in the healing that is needed for these most difficult of cases. But rather, under, rather than devalue or undermine what the church can do, the church can actually be a great source of help. As a church, we have been on the front lines, this, our own local church, we have been on the front lines of protecting children from neglect, protecting wives from abusive husbands, exposing unfaithful and unrepentant spouses, exposing and bringing discipline to long-hidden physical abuse, helping people overcome decades-long addictions to substances and sexual immorality, and other types of concerns that people usually see as the role of professionals. While the local church cannot meet all of the needs or fill all of the roles that these really serious um, situations uh, require, nor should it be expected to fulfill all those various roles, it does play a vital role in being an agent of action and in being an agent of protection and in being an agent of support to individuals and families 
when it is most needed. So what is the overall takeaway from this message? Well, I I hope it's been fairly straightforward. We've covered a lot of material. God has a plan through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the church to bring about his eternal purposes. That plan provides what the text calls a household order for individuals and families and churches to align themselves with in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, in order to be in step with the Holy Spirit, and to enjoy what God has designed marriages, families, and churches to experience. Unity, harmony, beauty, peace, and joy. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we have no chance to fully experience these. So let's draw upon that power that has been freely given and lavished upon us, the scriptures say. Let us walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Now this is a big hurdle for us in this world and in this present culture. The challenges against us that urge us to rebel and snub our noses at authority are everywhere. And not even that, the very notion of authority is under attack itself. Can there be any good authority? Aren't all authorities evil and oppressive? We are told that putting ourselves at great risk in submitting to any authority or ordering our lives along any sort of grand scheme or narrative is a risky thing to do. And for those who are in positions of authority, we wonder if it's possible to maintain our own well-being by sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. Shouldn't we use any position of, of power that we have to strengthen and enrich ourselves while we can? We can tell ourselves, if, if, I, if I don't look out for myself, who will? If I live a life of sacrifice and service, aren't people only going to take advantage of me? So these, these are the challenges that we have. And to combat these, I think we only need to look, I think we not only need to continue to pray that the Spirit strengthens our understanding and faith in God's Word so that we can believe and counteract these competing worldviews, But we need to continue to remind ourselves of the example of Jesus Christ. He submitted to the Father's will, even in the face of death. But then as king, he also served and sacrificed himself for the good of those who were under his care. He considered what God said was true. And as he considered it true, he aligned his mind and his life to follow it. This same spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, has been given to us. And Jesus will live through us if we consider God's word to be true and submit our wills and lives to that end. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us, that you have sealed into us, that enables us to be one with you and one with each other. With the vision, Lord God, of being in place of peace and harmony and unity with you and with each other and experiencing as humans what you have intended us to experience for all time. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would indeed strengthen us in our knowledge of your word, strengthen us in our faith in your word, and strengthen us, God, 
through the power of your Holy Spirit to work in our inner beings that we could experience your fullness in your presence. In your son's name we pray, amen.